Welcome to the Probate Realtor Show, your one source for selling and buying real estate through trust and probate. Hear directly from the best attorneys and trusted advisors on how executors and administrators navigate the probate process in and out of court. Being a personal representative or successor trustee can be a daunting task, and often beneficiaries don't have a clear plan. Let us help you make the right decision for your clients, your family, and your legacy. And now, here's your host, the probate realtor himself, Matias Baker Mazzucci. Welcome, everybody, to another exciting episode of our show. Today, we are talking to Ingrid Evans of Evans Law Firm. Ingrid, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Ingrid is an experienced uh, litigator. Her firm is is 100% dedicated to uh, litigation. She is licensed to practice in New York, Washington, D.C., and California. Has an extensive resume on our website, which is impressive. Um, so I'm very excited to be talking to you about this. And the topic of today, it's a very important topic, um, which is elder financial abuse. Ingrid, let's start by defining it. Uh, what is elder financial abuse? So I'm going to give you the definition um, that they use in California under the civil practice. So the Welfare and Institutions Code in California defines it as the taking, secreting, appropriating um, of any kind of property, whether it's uh, real property, so houses, deeds, uh, or money, um, um, personal property, um, an elder Mm-hmm. By a wrongful use, intent to defraud, or undue influence. Got it. That makes total sense. Now, what are some of the tactics that the people who um, are involved in in financial elder abuse use that you have observed in your practice? So, what I have been seeing recently that is really alarming um, and concerning. Uh, California has the most number of seniors of any state. So we have nearly 6 million. And of those 6 million, we have a lot of people that are being taken care of by private caregivers. So Mm -hmm. um, sometimes they're licensed, sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're bonded and insured, sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're in a nursing home or assisted living home. And then the caregiver becomes a personal friend of theirs and then gets involved in their life and goes and takes care of them outside of the facility. So what I see a lot of now that's really concerning to me is these caregivers taking over all aspects of the senior's life, becoming Mm -hmm. their power of attorney for uh, financial, health care, isolating their family and friends, getting on the deed of their houses, you know, and anybody in California who owns a house um, that is paid off is, is, probably a millionaire at least. Um, So there's a lot of money at stake. um, And it's, it's really egregious. I've seen um, some instances, many instances, actually, where it almost looks like it's organized, like they've done this before to numerous people, and maybe haven't gotten caught. You know, in my world, in the world of selling real estate, you know, and it happens that, you know, obviously, the assets, as you mentioned, real estate is such a big asset. And you find it, um, you know, my mom is trying to sell, you know, our house to the neighbor for like half what it's, you know, things like that. And and those are always red flags that, that, you know, families have to be aware. So what are, you know, what are the, some of the signs uh, that you think that families um, should look out for that signs uh, of, of financial elder abuse? Okay. Well, there's some that are obvious and some that aren't so obvious. So for example, so uh, occasionally my father will call me and I'll say, oh, I just got a phone call from this man who wants to take over all of my finances and they sound really legitimate and and great. Um, Or 
they want to sell me some gold. Um, and so to me, that's a huge, obvious red flag. You don't know this right. person from Adam. They're not recommended. There's no references. Um, and we, we know that there's so many internet scams out there and telephone scams out there. So that's, right. that's obvious. But then, then you have um, more, uh, you know, subtle ones. So somebody who gains access to a uh, power of attorney or to your bank records. And um, I think it's really important to regularly sit down and go over finances, go over bank records with your parents, check them, make sure there's no unusual spending, um, make sure that they're sticking with their kind of pattern of taking out cash. And it's important to just have transparency or review things. Um, I do think a lot of the older generation tends to be less transparent. They keep things secret from their kids. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's necessarily a good idea. I think as you get into your 80s and 90s, you should be transparent, especially if they're the ones that are going to be inheriting everything, because they're the ones that are going to be protecting you for the most part. Although occasionally I do see, you know, kids get into abusing their parents as well. But generally, I see it more as strangers and caregivers. Right. That makes sense. Um, now, you mentioned power of attorneys. So I guess my question related to power of attorneys is what role does the power of attorney play in either preventing or enabling um, Both. Elder it, it can prevent and it can enable elder financial abuse. So it can prevent it in this way. So I have a power of attorney set for me, even at my age, um, mm -hmm. for both healthcare and finances. So if something happens that I become incompetent incompetent or incapacitated temporarily um i have people that can come in and, and take over for my finances and make healthcare decisions i think that's really important for everybody to have and i recommend that you have two of each so mm -hmm. people that act jointly especially if you have any concerns that maybe somebody doesn't make the best decisions or you're worried that they could you know take advantage of you or uh, if there's kids involved and one's going to um, have jealousy of the other one, it's probably better to have both involved. So um, it can prevent um, uh, elder financial abuse in that way, because then you have somebody, you know, looking out for you, you don't have a stranger. Right. However, you know, I do see caregivers coming in. And it's so easy to get a power of attorney signed, the elders typically don't even know what they're signing. They put a deed or a power of attorney in front of the elder who oftentimes can't even read at this point, you know, or right. maybe they don't speak the language and they sign the power of attorney. And it's a very powerful document giving away all of their rights to somebody else. Right. And some of them uh, go into effect immediately. Some go into effect when you are deemed incompetent, but you need to be very careful who you give a power of attorney to. Yes, that. Absolutely. Now, um, I have been asked in the past uh, to give a, a talk uh, at the Cedar Sinai memory, memory Clinic, you know, that deals with Alzheimer and 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 one of, and, and all memory disorders. And some of the things that um, doctors have come. To, uh, my my talk was related to the sale of real estate. That's because that's what I do. But one of the things that the doctors had mentioned to me that actually I found interesting. It relates to what you said. You said about communication, you know, communicate with your family, let them know what you want to do. One of the things that um, I have I have heard from from doctors is that people that are in the early stages of Alzheimer, for instance, are resisting the fact of making plans like power of attorney, such as things like that, because they say, you know, what, they don't they have a difficult time admitting that there is a, a 
a place down the line where they may not be able to take care of their own affairs. People are proud, rightly so. And so that happens. So in your experience, I know you deal with the litigation aspect, but um, if you, um, how do you encourage your clients to have a conversation with their family when there, where there may be resistance, where it's difficult conversation? Are there any, any ways that you um, sort of like can help them, you know, even when it gets to you to the point of litigation and say, you know, it's a good idea to start communicating and figuring out what's going on here? Absolutely. I do that. I tell them that. And I and I encourage people. Sometimes I, I give talks at, at various places. I get invited to give speeches on elder financial abuse. But I tell people that at, mm-hmm. at an earlier age, 20s, 30s, and 40s, you should really have, anytime you start a family, you should have powers of right. attorney, you should have guardianship set up. And so it's not an age thing. Um, mm-hmm. Disability and incompetency can happen to anyone, you know, right. car accidents. So it and it's inevitable um, that we're all going to get older. Doesn't necessarily right. mean we're going to lose our competence, but uh, quite a high number do. So it's something we have to take into account. We should prepare. We should plan while we're clear-headed, and everybody should do it, no matter what. That makes total sense. Thank you. Um, now we briefly talk about some of the red flags that we that that may arise out of uh, um, you know elder financial abuse for a family member. Um, obviously, caregivers, and I believe there, there are, um, you know, there are there are some um, uh, categories of people that receive that are beneficiaries that automatically raise red flags. You know, I think caregivers, I believe it's one of them. And 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 uh, um, I, I was talking to an attorney that specializes in in uh, independent reviews of estate plans, and that was one of the categories that that uh, that raises a red flag. But apart from giving everything away to the to the person who's taking care of the senior, um, what do you think is um, some of the other common red flags that that a family can observe and and perhaps be proactive about. <clears throat> okay, so uh, what I look for is reviewing the bank records and the financial records, and if there's a change in pattern, mm-hmm. most people have a pattern. So, for example, I take out maybe two hundred dollars cash every two weeks. Um, you know, so you look for those patterns, and if they're changing dramatically, and they're changing where they're going to, where they're spending, how much they're taking out. That's something that the family and the banks should be aware of and, and uh, looking at because there is responsibility for institutions as well. Um, the independent review, any lawyer that does certificates of independent review, I think that they're setting themselves up for a world of trouble because uh, why are you doing certificates of independent review, particularly if somebody is in their 80s or 90s and they're changing their estate plan that's been in place for a long time? To me, that is a red flag. So if somebody's had an estate plan that always leaves everything to their three kids and then suddenly they're in their 80s or 90s and they want to disinherit one or they want to leave it to their caregiver and do a certificate of independent review, that's a big problem. Okay, you got to be aware of that. Um, Powers of um, and then, you know, anytime you give anything to somebody who's not family, who hasn't been involved in your life for a long time, that is a red flag. That makes total sense. Um, so let me let me follow up on this certificate of independent review because you know I have it's not this is one of the things that that I had, had done a little research about and and looked into. So do you feel that these certificate of independent review are not worth the paper they're written on? I mean, some are are statutory, right? So uh, do you feel that these the, the attorneys who do the these reviews you said they're setting themselves up for you know uh, problems? Um, 
Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. Um, personally, in my practice, I would not do a certificate of independent review. If somebody's coming to me and they suddenly want to change their longstanding estate plan to give it to a caregiver or a non-family member, okay. that's a red flag. And why, why expose yourself to liability? I've sued quite a few lawyers for assisting in the taking of property and helping yeah. caregivers take money from seniors. And they should be aware of that and they should be concerned. It's not worth the money that they're going to get to do a certificate of independent review to you know, expose themselves to liability and to be hurting people. Um, so that's number one. Um, number two is, you know, I've talked to lawyers who have done certificates of independent review and some of them tend to be more inexperienced lawyers. They don't know the backstory. They're believing the caregiver. Oh, yeah, they, the family is not involved in their life at all anymore. They, they We don't even know if they're alive anymore. And then they just, some of them just lie to the attorneys. And the attorneys are taking it hook, line, and sinker, which is not their job. They're do, supposed right. to be doing a certificate of independent review. And I've had to, you know, talk to lawyers that have done these and explain what the real facts are. And they were horrified when I told them what was going on. And I think they felt quite righteous, um, rightfully stupid. Um, um, so, you know, be careful of that and, and don't Thank do you. it is my my um, direction to lawyers. <laughs> Thank you very much for elucidating on that. I, re I really appreciate it. Uh, let's talk about the consequences that some of these perpetrators uh, will encounter you know, if caught and then uh, prosecuted. So let's say, you know, somebody comes to you and they say, oh, you know, I just found out that the caregiver took 200,000 out of my father's account. And now the caregiver is nowhere to be found or whatever, whatever the situation may be. And then let's say that, you know, they do find the person and you're able to prosecute them. What what are the, you know, what are the consequences for, for this type of theft? Well, there's criminal and there's also civil um, okay. consequences. So I would like to see more criminal consequences because, like I've said, it's pretty egregious, you know, taking millions of dollars from, you know, a, a an elder and giving it to a caregiver can be oftentimes, and, and I've seen situations where the caregivers have actually poisoned the elder oh, um, wow. um, right after they get the um, their estate from them. So you know, I would like to see those prosecuted and they should have been prosecuted. And I feel like a lot of prosecutors in California, I don't know about other states, um, aren't taking on financial abuse cases as much as they should, um, mm -hmm. with the exception of some counties. So San Diego, for example, has an excellent prosecutor down there who's been doing um, elder financial abuse uh, uh, prosecutions for years and is very, very knowledgeable um, but a lot of counties just let it go. You know, it's a paper trail. You have to do a lot of extensive discovery. When I take a case, I issue a lot of subpoenas to all the financial institutions. And I and I put together a, a story of mm -hmm. what happened, what changed. And oftentimes it's complicated money changing from various banks. It's hard to know what happened. Um, but then under the civil, um, I have found that it we've been very successful in recovering money. We can't put anyone in jail, though. Um, mm -hmm. We can't. Um, we, there's no victim's compensation fund. But as we there are, a, California has excellent laws, um, in, in both criminally and in civil litigation. And so I think it has the strongest elder financial abuse laws in the country. And so we are able to get oftentimes all the money back, sometimes double damages, sometimes attorney's fees. Mm -hmm. um, so they're excellent, excellent remedies in California for elder financial abuse. And it's it's not going to be worth it if you have a competent lawyer coming after you 
and um, you've taken a lot of money from somebody, you're going to get caught. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Um, can you see, share with us um, a success story when legal action effectively resolved a, a elder financial abuse case? Yeah, so I'll tell you about one of the worst cases I, I handled a while ago. Um, this was a situation where we had a repeated caregiver um, doing the same thing to multiple people. So she um, met an elderly man who just lost his wife. I think he was in his late 80s or 90s at the time, who was in an assisted living. She was a caregiver at the assisted living. She then got him to leave the assisted living, married him, whether or not he was competent, I don't know. So she got everything that he had. Um, um, And then (laughs) that was not enough. So she had all of her family that she had moved over here and was taking care of everybody. Um, She decided to go after the uh, another family member of that same family. So she went after an elderly um, man who had millions of dollars um, and she changed his will. She changed um, his bank accounts. She was making phone calls. He was heavily medicated because he was um, he was dying and he was on um, painkillers for back pain. And she was just changing everything. Uh, at one point, he had a stroke, and she refused to call nine one one because she was oh, getting God. notaries in there to have him notarize uh, documents while he was on his deathbed. Well, he didn't die that time. So, at some point, we we believe very strongly that she um, gave him alcohol, um, which he was not. He was a recovering alcoholic and not drinking and not able to serve himself. So we know he wasn't doing it. And then she gave him like high amounts of morphine and Ativan oh, wow. all mixed together and he ended up dying. So did she kill him? I think so. Um, and in that situation, we brought an elder financial abuse case. We can't bring a murder case. That's up to prosecutors. Um, right. You know, um, I can encourage them, but I can't make them. Um, but we were able to get all of the money back that she took from this second victim. I wasn't hired for the first victim um, and the statute of limitations had run, but we got all the money back. Um, and um, I think that was very stressful for her. I mean, her daughters were involved and they were sued or they were going to be sued next. And so we were able to collect all the money for his uh, remaining surviving siblings. Um, and they were very relieved that we were able to do that. So that's, you know, that's the best outcome. I mean, in that situation, the person's already deceased and possibly have been killed by the caregiver. So there's nothing we can do about that, but at least to get the money back to the rightful family members is important. And it made me feel good about what we were able to accomplish. It makes sense. Thank you for sharing that with us. Now the million dollar question, how to avoid um, elder financial abuse. Do you have any tips for the elders, you know, the senior community, what they could do to protect themselves from, um, from this you know, type of abuse? Yeah, I think about this a lot because I see so many bad situations. And so what I have done in my own life to protect my family is I have a power of attorney already set up for both healthcare and finances. I have two people for each. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to act jointly. And um, when I pass away, um, all of my assets go to my daughter as opposed to my husband because sometimes when we leave money to the surviving spouse and they're elderly 
they're just, they become a target. So the way we've set it up, and this is contrary to what most estate planners do. So I think this is really important. Um, Consider leaving it to your surviving spouse in as a life estate, meaning they get to use it for the rest of their life, but they are not able to give it away. They're not able to give it to a caregiver and they're not able to give it to their new wife or their new girlfriend or their new husband. Um, And it then goes to your kids. That's what most people ultimately want. But what happens is we have the widow or the widower, they're left, they become incompetent or they become lonely and they end up giving it away to somebody who's not the rightful family owner. So consider doing something that's different than what most estate planners recommend. I feel like they think of things in a box and they don't think about what could happen if there's elder financial abuse. So I have developed this and I tell all my friends, leave it to your partner only as a life estate and your separate property then goes to your um, children, your your half of the community property goes to your children. So you're at least protecting them. And same thing for my husband too. He made sure that whatever he has only goes to me as a life estate. And then everything, community property and separate property goes to our kids. That makes total sense. Thank you for sharing that. That was very enlightening. Uh, now let's talk about your journey, which is something that it's, you know, always fascinates me. Um, did you want to practice? Did you want to be a litigator in, in, in this uh, environment where you do when you, when you, when you, before you went to law school, did you know what kind of law you wanted to practice? No, um, I knew from the age of 12 that I wanted to be a lawyer and I wanted to help the underdog and help people that were victims. So I knew that uh, essentially I was going to be, um, you know, a plaintiff lawyer um, helping victims. What I wanted to do, I had no idea. So I tried to do a bunch of different things. I loved environmental law, wanted to help the environment. And then I went to the city attorney's office and I worked on a bunch of different cases there. And they asked me if I wanted to do a, an elder financial abuse case. The first one that the city of San Francisco was going to bring representing mm-hmm. the, the public guardian in San Francisco. And I said, sure. So we had in, in San Francisco an elder that um, whose neighbor took all of his money and bought a Porsche. Okay. okay. Very nice Porsche with this poor elderly person's <laughs> money. And the elderly person, he didn't really care. He, he liked this person. He didn't really have family. Um, so it was a very tough and complicated case, but it was my first experience with elder financial abuse. I found it fascinating and interesting, uh, fascinating that sometimes the victim doesn't realize that they're the victim or doesn't doesn't care that they're the victim. Um, and so you have to be kind of choosy on the types of cases you get involved in and make sure you have, you're representing the senior. So you have to make sure that they want to do this they're competent, if they're not competent, that we have somebody who has standing and is competent to litigate for them. Um, so it was something that I kind of fell into, um, but I've been doing it since 2001 and I, I love doing it. It's it's amazing. I, and I feel like I can really make a difference in people's lives. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. Now, before I let you go, I would like for you to pick a number between one and 30. This is how I end my shows. So I'm going to subject you to it. And I'm going to ask you a question that is unrelated to, to business. Okay. Eight. Eight. Okay. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Uh, journalism. I think okay. journalists are 
amazing and we need the truth out there. We need to know what's going on in the world. And they put their lives on the line every day. I respect what they do. Um, you know, thank you. That's great. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been such a pleasure to have you. Um, one more thing. What is the, if, uh, you know, we're going to have your contact information in the show notes, um, but what is the best way for people to reach you if somebody needs to hire you for, um, for some litigation? My email, um, you can email the office at um, info, I-N-F-O at Evans, E-V-A-N-S law.com. Wonderful. Um, thank you so much, Ingrid. It's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. And uh, thank you, everybody, for joining us. And we'll see you on the next episode. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Probate Realtor Show. Find more episodes and interact with us at probaterealtor.la. That's probaterealtor.la. Listen, ask questions, and get results. Don't forget to like and subscribe. The Probate Realtor Matias Baker Mazzucci is a licensed real estate broker in California, DRE number 02054763. Any legal information provided is for informational purposes only and not for the purpose of providing legal advice. Contact an attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal issue or problem. We make no guarantees as to the accuracy of any information. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.